ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm James Glenday, coming to you from Canberra on Ngunnawal Country. Welcome to This Week. Australians with mortgages breathed a sigh of relief this week as interest rates were left on hold for another month. And a number of analysts now think the RBA could be done with rate hikes for some time. The economy is slowing. New data shows that if it weren't for rapid population growth, the country would be going backwards, which is no doubt a little concerning for the Federal Treasurer, Jim Chalmers. Our economy is slowing considerably, has been slowing considerably, as the inevitable consequence of higher interest rates and global economic uncertainty. At the same time, our population growth has been recovering, And so what we're seeing right now uh, is negative uh, real per capita GDP growth. In other words, we've slid into a per capita recession. Australia's economic pie is larger, but we are all getting a slightly smaller slice. A per capita recession means that each of us are experiencing a decline in living standards, that even though bottom line GDP is growing because there are more people in Australia spending money and doing things, in individual terms, it's going backwards. And so that we're feeling the pain of an economy that's weak. Stephen Kukoulos is an economist who has long been arguing that the RBA hiked rates too hard and too often, triggering the slowdown we're seeing right now. In a sense, the economy had to slow. When we came out of the pandemic and interest rates were 0.1% when the government was still pump-priming the economy, all for good reasons, by the way, that we, you know, the pandemic was a really obscure thing for policymakers to manage. So we mm. set all systems go for the economy. However, those low interest rates were probably kept too low for too long and the economy had this inflation surge. So the economy had to slow down. So it seems like some of the rate hikes from earlier this year are still flowing through to the economy. Will things continue to slow down over the next six to 12 months? Oh, we're only partway through this economic slowdown. I think it's important to note people are still rolling over their mortgages into this higher interest rate structure. Businesses are still responding. So if you're, a, for example, a big retailer and your business is slowing down and you've been left with some unwanted inventory on the shelves, you might want to clear that by hoping to entice people into your shop. And as you lower the prices, the Bureau of Statistics will measure that as uh, lower inflation. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of how the interest rate hikes and the slowing economy feeds back through into this lower inflation, which is absolutely important if we're to improve or stabilise, I suppose, the cost of living pressures Mm -hmm. that many people have been feeling for several years. The RBA is trying to slow the economy and stem increases to the cost of living without crashing the economy. With this week's data in mind, is the RBA done, do you think, with interest rate hikes? We never say definitely in the world of economics (laughs) and policy settings. A few of us have been burnt by such predictions in the past. And, well, dare I say it, even the uh, current RBA governor was Mm. burnt by his prediction that interest rates would stay on hold till 2024, stay on hold at 0.1%. And we all know about that. But look, as we sit here now, and as we look at the data it is very likely that we've seen the last of the interest rate hikes. Your views on interest rates are relatively well known, I think, to a lot of people. Is it still your view that the RBA might have gone too far, that it did too much, particularly at the start of this year? 
Oh, look, I think they did do too much with the benefit of hindsight, but even from the benefit of the contemporary sort of mm. analysis of the economy, that the fact that we had per capita GDP going backwards in the March quarter mm-hmm. and the June quarter says to me that they didn't really need to deliver these last few interest rate hikes, that they're worried about a wage price spiral. They're worried about the inflation rate being sticky, that is not falling as rapidly. And we compare with where we are now with where we were, say, when the February rate hike was delivered. Inflation is materially lower than they were forecasting. Wages growth has not proved to be the issue that's feeding into inflation. If anything, wages growth is starting to slow. Do you worry that uh, a per capita recession could turn into an actual recession? Is there a chance of that? There is a chance that we get something like an actual recession because we do know that we consumers, the consumer spending numbers, are incredibly weak. One of the things that kept us out of a broader recession in the most recent data was the fact that business investment was nice and strong and our net exports made a a nice contribution to bottom line GDP. But if we do have a further weakening in the consumer and some of this business investment were to peter out and if they all conspire and then we get hit on the export side by a weaker China and a weaker world economy, you know, the risks are to the downside. Whether that materialises in a genuine recession, if that's the right word, is unclear because we still have population growth that's very strong. How long do you think it'll be until analysts start seriously discussing a rate cut? I still think it's a long way away. The the rate cut discussion is one more of a scenario planning rather than a hard and fast forecast. Mm. That it's one where we economists are sort of looking at the bottom line GDP. We're seeing weakness. We're seeing the unemployment rate increase. And we're seeing inflation falling. But even though inflation has fallen quite nicely over the first part of 2023, it's still above the target. And for the Reserve Bank to actually pull the trigger on a rate cut, it would need to see not just a return to the target for, say, one or two quarters. It would need the momentum to be really entrenched in the 2 to 3% target. And coinciding with that, it would need to see that upturn in the unemployment rate. I don't think anybody's got their hand on their heart saying that the RBA will be cutting in a particular month, even though the money markets are now starting to price in the very high probability that in the latter part of 2024, so roughly 12 months from now, the RBA will actually be delivering interest rate cuts. Pundits are particularly cautious about forecasting these things thanks to Philip Lowe's experience. This week he had his last meeting as Governor of the RBA. The issue that has defined my term as Governor more than any other is the forward guidance about interest rates that was uh, provided during the pandemic. Now there's a lot to be learned from this experience including how to communicate in uncertain times. Around the country, I think it's fair to say he's not hugely popular among people with large mortgages. How do you think he should be remembered? Look, he was governor at a difficult time. Of course, the COVID issues were something that we hadn't seen Mm. and unemployment at a 48-year low, which it got down to, was something that we haven't seen. So he was dealing with unusual economic circumstances and, and that made his job particularly difficult. But part of his problem occurred well before the pandemic came along. But in that early period, the first part of his term as RBA governor, inflation was below the bottom of the target for four consecutive years. And had they targeted inflation correctly pre-pandemic and cut interest rates earlier, it would have created an extra 270,000 jobs. So that's sort of part of his negative legacy. And it's not just this guidance of no rate hikes till 2024, which was clearly a poor communication and a poor uh, application of monetary policy. It was very slow to hike interest rates. So 
you know, a, a, a great economist, but he hasn't hit the nail. In fact, mm. he hasn't even hit the piece of wood. He's missed on many, many occasions, unfortunately. It was interesting uh, to see the uh, the new governor, the incoming governor, Michelle Bullock, she didn't want to go anywhere near uh, guessing where <laughs> rates might go. I hope you're not asking me to give forward guidance. What is going to change under her leadership, do you think? Can she restore the bank's reputation? I think Michelle Bullock, when she takes over in a couple of weeks as RBA governor, has a clean slate in a sense. And part of her time as governor will be presiding over a board of experts who know about monetary policy. So that will make her job a little better, I think. And there'll be a, a fulsome debate about the inflation target. Her job will be a little more transparent. She's got to give a press conference after every RBA decision. So she'll be accountable to the media and, and others who will be on that call. And she has to publish additional detail on the decision, who voted for the rate hike or the rate cut, whatever the case may be. So there'll be a lot more transparency about how the board made the decision, be it the right one or the wrong one. One comment the soon-to-be governor did make was about climate change. What did you make about her comments that climate change could affect interest rates in the future? I don't think it means that there's going to be any material near-term influence on whether they hike or cut interest rates because Mm. of global warming or volatility in climate, for example. However, the likelihood of more extreme weather events, cyclones or floods that cause lettuce prices to go to $10 and the like, are going to be more apparent. Insurance premiums are probably going to increase very rapidly. It's more analysing those medium-term projections to say, you know, what are the risks there? What is happening to the prices of food, for example, if we know that there's El Nino coming through in a drought, which of course has a big impact on mm. food prices. So it's really acknowledging those things and, you know, do they adjust interest rates because of a drought? And that's a question that we need to sort of bear in mind because, of mm. course, interest rates won't make it rain. Stephen Kukoulos is an economist and managing director of Market Economics. Well, as we were just hearing, there's been a changing of the guard at the RBA with Michelle Bullock on the verge of taking over as governor of the central bank. And this week, we also saw the baton passed in one of the country's other high-profile jobs as the embattled Qantas boss, Alan Joyce, took an earlier-than-planned retirement, leaving his successor, Vanessa Hudson, to take over the controls of an airline court in a rapid descent. A new day, a new CEO, and what Qantas will hope is a new direction for the airline. The new head of Qantas, Vanessa Hudson, has had her first day on the job following the early departure of Alan Joyce. She's landed the top job at Qantas, but on day one, Vanessa Hudson is facing a monumental task of rebuilding... Both the RBA and Qantas have suffered reputational damage over the past few years. So can Vanessa Hudson at Qantas and Michelle Bullock at the RBA improve things quickly? Or have they been put on what's been dubbed the glass cliff? The idea of the glass cliff really is this idea that women are up high, they're in senior positions, but the chances of falling off, that precarity of the position, is really high as well. Professor Michelle Ryan is the director of the Global Institute of Women's Leadership at the Australian National University, and almost two decades ago, she and a colleague coined the term glass cliff while working in the United Kingdom. 
Yeah, that makes me feel really old, James. But uh, yeah, so two decades ago, uh, we came up with the idea of the glass cliff. And it's really looking at what happens when women break through the glass ceiling. So I think everyone's familiar with that metaphor, the sort of idea that women can't get beyond a certain point in their career trajectories. But there are, of course, those women that do take on uh, very senior leadership roles. So whether that's leading Qantas or, you know, the governor of the RBA. And we found from a, a whole range of different types of research that women are much more likely to take these positions in times of crisis, when things are going badly, when things are looking a little bit shaky. So why did you start investigating this phenomenon? Yeah, the research really came from a single article um, that was published in The Times. Um, Mm. So I had just moved to the UK. So within a couple of weeks of me arriving, there was an article in The Times that talked about women breaking through or smashing the glass ceiling. But the article then talked about how women were wreaking havoc once they got there. And they had, had taken a look at some data and basically argued that the share prices of companies where women were on boards were more likely to sort of be going downwards compared to companies that had all men. Mm. And your research essentially found that, well, maybe these companies were already in strife before uh, these women were appointed to these roles. Is that correct? Exactly. So our research really tried to flip the causality around. So Mm -hmm. the newspaper article was saying that women were wreaking havoc, so causing companies to do badly. But what we showed was exactly the opposite, that when companies were doing badly, that's when they appointed women to their boards of directors. Mm. So essentially, some of them are, are being set up to fail. Yeah, so so that's really what where the research went is trying to explain why this was occurring. So one of the explanations could be that women are being set up for failure. There are more charitable explanations that we've explored as well. So maybe it's just that women are terrific at dealing with crisis. But mm. our take-home message is that these are sort of difficult, precarious positions and, and that they're a form of subtle gender discrimination. Mm-hmm. Now, some aren't convinced that the glass cliff is real. Some researchers say they found no evidence of it in certain circumstances. Other researchers have uh, found evidence of it, as you did. I mean, what do you say to the people who say, well, no, we don't think the glass cliff is a real thing? Well, we've been doing this work for a long time, Mm. as you said, and of course, not every precarious leadership position has a woman in it, and not every single woman is in a precarious leadership position. But our research does show over and over again, um, either whether it's archival research or whether it's experimental research, that women are more likely to be in these positions. So we've done big, what we call meta-analysis, which is analyses of, you know, two decades worth of research that shows that it is a consistent finding that's there. This month in Australia, women are moving into two very high-profile roles in organisations that have faced substantial reputational damage. Vanessa Hudson has taken over the reins at Qantas, promising a new start. We know that post-COVID, we haven't always delivered to what our customers expect, but we are listening and we hear what they are saying. While uh, Michelle Bullock will soon begin as the new governor of the Reserve Bank. Probably unsurprising to say my first priority is to keep very focused on inflation. Inflation is still too high in Australia. They do take on these roles at at difficult times. Do you think they fit the, the classic glass cliff definition, according to your research? 
Yeah, definitely. I, I think I, I would say that these are really classic examples of the glass cliff. And it's interesting because a lot of our work had been done in sort of big corporates looking at crisis in terms of share price. But of course, these are different types of crises in terms of this reputational aspect of Qantas, I guess. And the RBA, again, a very sort of different scenario. We're not talking about share prices here, but we're talking about interest rates. And, and I guess the scrutiny in both of these cases that the public has, but, you know, also the government and regulators have in these two organisations is really high at the moment. So do you think that these two women will have to perform substantially better, for example, than their predecessors to be deemed a success yeah, I mean, I think leadership at this sort of level is always difficult and no one is expecting or, you know, that women should just go into cruisy positions where everything is easy. But I do think that these sorts of positions make it extra difficult. I mean, it's much more difficult to be a leader in a time of crisis, but also just the scrutiny during a crisis is massive. So we know from the research that female leaders get extra scrutiny anyway because they're unusual. I mean, there's far fewer women in leadership roles than there are men. But then turning something around and dealing with crisis is much more difficult than just keeping things on an even keel as well. When I hear the term glass cliff, I immediately think of Theresa May, who of course took over as Prime Minister of the UK after the Brexit referendum. And that felt like at the time that that was a pretty difficult job to take on. But Generally, I'm sort of interested in this concept. Do we only know whether women in leadership are definitively on a glass cliff after they've fallen? Yeah, sometimes it can be anticipated. So mm. I think certainly even, you know, just as Theresa May was coming into that position, there was a lot of talk about that being a glass cliff position. So before she had even uttered a word or, you know, made a decision, there was talk about that. So I think we can often anticipate crisis and how people are going to fare. But sometimes, yes, we don't know till we look back. Presumably, uh, some of the women in these roles might successfully dance along the edge of this uh, so-called glass cliff and then pull the organisation back from the brink. Does that diminish in any way the phenomenon itself? So the glass cliff doesn't say that failure is inevitable. It just says that these positions are risky and precarious. So those women that do manage to do well, so Mary Barra is an example at General Motors. So she managed to turn General Motors around and actually turn it into a success. So failure is not inevitable. But really what is important about the glass cliff are the circumstances under which you're appointed and the fact that there are more risks, that there is more precarity, that, that it is a mid-crisis is the crux of the idea. And it just makes success more difficult, not impossible. Mm. So we've spoken about individuals facing the glass cliff, but do you believe that this phenomenon can actually have a, a, a bigger impact on women in the workforce in general? So one of the things that we talked about is how the glass cliff can be problematic for those women that take on leadership positions in times of crisis. But it also potentially has implications for gender equality and women in leadership more generally. One reason for that is that often people talk about the lack of role models or the lack of women in leadership positions and about aspiring other women to think about uh, taking on leadership roles. Now, if we see women in these crisis glass cliff, you know, 
know, high scrutiny positions that might turn other women off seeking leadership roles. And does this phenomenon just apply to women or are there other groups that are affected as well? I mean, one of the interesting things about the glass cliff is that it doesn't just occur for women, that it does occur for people from other minoritised groups as well. So there's some really interesting work that looks at coaches of sporting teams in the US and for teams that are failing, they're much more likely to have black or ethnic minority coaches than ones that are doing well. Rishi Sunak is an interesting example, again, post-Brexit in the UK. And there's also some research that looks on the basis of sexuality, for example, so LGBTQI plus individuals, and also on the basis of, you know, disability as well. So you believe Vanessa Hudson and Michelle Bullock could be standing on the edge of a glass cliff, but that doesn't necessarily mean they will fail, does it? Absolutely. I, I mean, I think Qantas is going to have a lot of scrutiny at the moment about what they do next and the decisions that are made in you know the coming weeks and months. But it doesn't mean it's inevitable. I mean, one of the reasons that people think that women are being put in leadership positions in times of crisis is that a change of leadership is needed. And so not only is it just a change of person, Maybe it's about doing things differently. And there's often a feeling that perhaps that women will do something differently. Now, I'm not sure whether I completely agree that women, just because they're women, lead in a different way or bring something different. But certainly a change in leadership when things are going badly is not necessarily a bad organisational strategy. Professor Michelle Ryan is the director of the ANU's Global Institute of Women's Leadership. Now, just a few short weeks ago, Spain's women made history in Sydney, beating England 1-0 in the FIFA World Cup final to lift the trophy for the first time. Millions watched the game, which was the culmination of a tournament widely praised for boosting the profile of women's sport. But the celebrations were quickly overshadowed by a kiss when, in front of all the spectators watching on, Spain's soccer boss Luis Rubiales planted one square on the lips of star player Jenny Hermoso. Amid the outcry that followed, the official has been adamant he will not step down. No, voy a dimitir. I will not resign, he declared over and over. Jenny Hermoso has now filed a legal complaint arguing the kiss was non-consensual and she's got the support of not just her teammates but of many officials and the public. The team's coach has now been sacked. Rubiales could face criminal prosecution and the scandal has spiralled into a broader debate about sexist behaviour and women's rights. I would summarise it by saying it's men behaving badly around elite female athletes who deserve better. Benita Merciades is a writer and former Australian soccer official and, as she points out, the origins of this saga go back much further, with several senior players refusing to represent Spain at the World Cup because of the men in charge. This was not untypical of someone in senior levels of football administration and management. There's this sort of continuum of behaviour. We've heard about corruption in football and corruption at FIFA, for example, but, you know, it's the same sport that's involved in sports washing. Um, So there's this continuum of of things uh, where sexism is just another part of how they behave poorly 
and how they don't understand the difference between right and wrong. So this is extraordinary. Just to recap, Spain has won the World Cup, the pinnacle in that sport. Yet they seem to do this despite their coach and they did it without some key players. So why were those players missing? Well, those players were missing because last year, uh, 15 or so players wrote to the Spanish Football Federation and said, unless the coach goes, we're not going to take part in this team anymore. And the response to that from Luis Rubiales, the man with the kiss, was, well, basically, you can get stuffed. We're keeping our coach and you either play with the team or you don't play with the team. We're not getting rid of the coach. And so some of the women decided that they were going to go through with what they said and they did Mm. not return to the team. So, yeah, there were a number of their top players who were actually missing. What was your immediate reaction to that kiss during the celebrations after they'd lifted the trophy? My immediate reaction was, what what the hell was he doing? My immediate thoughts were, though, that this was not untypical of someone in senior levels of football administration and management. There's this sort of continuum of behaviour. We've heard about corruption in football and corruption at FIFA, for example. Um, So there's this continuum of, of things where sexism is just another part of how they behave poorly and how they don't understand the difference between right and wrong. The eyes of the world were on him. Do you just think that Rubiales thought, this is fine, I can get away with this? Absolutely, Rubiales would have thought he could get away with it. Just as many people within World Football Administration thought they could get away with being corrupt for years, they just thought they were above the law or Mm. above what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. And his reaction since suggests that he still thinks not only can he get away with it, but he ought to get away with it and he doesn't understand everybody else. Mm. So earlier this week, uh, the team's coach, Jorge Vildo, a controversial coach, as we've just discussed, he was finally fired. It seems like very few of his players will be sad about that. What was his relationship like with Rubiales? Vilda and Rubiales were very close. Vilda was appointed when Rubiales came into the job. The fact that Rubiales supported the coach over the players last year demonstrated that. Mm. And, you know, in turn, when Rubiales, a few days after the World Cup, gave that amazing, and I, I use that term pejoratively, that amazing speech in which he said he won't resign about 20 times, you know, Vilda was there applauding away. So from afar, I mean, given that Vilda backed Rubiales, it, it seems like a sort of easy decision, but I imagine closer to it, do you think that Vilda was surprised that he actually did eventually get sacked? I suspect he was because, you know, it gets back to these people generally don't understand what is right, what is wrong, what is appropriate, what's inappropriate. And I think basically the world's gone past them and they haven't actually realised. And the strength of feeling, you know, around the whole hashtag Me Too issues in Spain has been, from my understanding, building for some time within society generally. And, you know, this is part of a tipping point for that. And I suspect, you know, men like Vilda and Rubiales don't get that. They clearly Mm. don't get it, don't understand it, don't respect it, and don't respect these athletes as the 
top quality elite professional athletes that they are, men or women. Spain's in the spotlight. This issue doesn't seem like it's going to be just isolated to one country or one team. How much of a role do you think FIFA needs to play in this? How much of this has been allowed to occur under FIFA's umbrella? I think FIFA has set the environment and the culture for world football for decades. You know, probably seven or eight years ago, we heard so much about FIFA corruption. And, you know, I was one of the whistleblowers in the world around Mm. FIFA corruption. And that's the same, it's the same issue. It's the same continuum of issues. They don't understand what is appropriate behaviour and they have a culture where there's people are protected, they don't talk about it, you take people out of positions and put other people into positions and they just do the same things. It's a classic mafia structure as the US FBI and the and US Senator Richard Blumenthal said back in 2016. And despite the changes in 2016, in which we saw, for instance, a woman CEO come into FIFA and a new president, the culture hasn't changed. Mm. Um, What we've got are some processes, we've got some new policies, but as I always say, when it comes to an issue of process versus culture, culture wins every time. So like uh, Jenny Hermoso, you're also a woman who spoke up about FIFA. Can you just tell us how were you treated at the time? Abominably, <laughs> mm. and and arguably still am, to be fair. And at the time, there were two women whistleblowers in the world who brought those issues to attention. And it's no surprise that the FIFA's reaction at the time was to try and intimidate both women and hope that they go into a corner, curl up and die. Yeah, that happens generally to whistleblowers and it happens generally to people who are agitating or advocating for a cause, which is what Jenny Hermoso is doing. I mean, the social media that's been around trying to suggest that Jenny Hermoso was actually the person who initiated all of this, Mm. it's just, one, it's typical and two, it's outrageous. So she is a big name in women's football. Do you have any confidence that this scandal might actually be a tipping point, that this there could be change in Spain and that things will improve for this star team? I think it might be different this time. I think the world is beginning to take notice of these things more broadly than just the more closeted world of football. And although football is a big sport, it has been traditionally allowed to get away with things because they just use the excuse that we're too big to fail. But I think this one so outraged so many people after what was a wonderful tournament and a wonderful performance from a very fine group of athletes that people just realised things have gone too far and that sort of behaviour needs to be addressed and knocked out and the issues that the Spanish women, for example, raised in relation to the running of their team and the professionalisation of their team, they need to be addressed. That was writer and former Australian soccer official Benita Merciades. And that's the episode for this week. You can subscribe by searching for the This Week podcast. It's produced by Nick Grimm, Lara Corrigan, Marcus Hobbs and me, James Glenday. Catch you next time.